Hi there and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. We are two die-hard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. Real, family-friendly and positive. Get involved. Now, welcome to episode 11 for Queen and Country, where we're going to be talking about our Anzac team. So, bringing back some of the fighting spirit of World War I. Uh, Mitch, how has your week been before we jump into that? It's been good. It's um, sl- life slowly getting back into normal regularity. Some of the COVID-19 laws are being relaxed. So things are going a little bit more back to normal. But Yeah, I, um, I popped into the local shops yesterday to just pick up some kind of groceries and it, like, it was insane how many people were out. It seemed like everybody has just been bunkered down, heard the news that things were going to start getting lifted and then everyone just decided to go to the shopping centre. Yeah, that's what um, I've heard as well. Yeah, I just, it was weird. I went outside because there were too many people. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, so hopefully we don't go backwards. Exactly. Um, but in a way, it's good. Uh, I know that my boy will be very happy to be able to play any equipment in the park and that type of thing. So it's nice to have some sense of normality coming back in. Yeah, definitely um, some of those sort of regular things that we sort of took for granted before that were taken away would definitely be nice to have back again. Being able to yeah. go to the park and and gather with groups of more than two people and that kind of thing will be a welcome change. Exactly. Exactly. We've had a couple of friends get married throughout the COVID time and it was just odd to see like the family live streaming the wedding ceremonies as well. So yeah, it's, it's so strange. Time. I'm very happy that we're starting to come out the other end, especially because I have some friends in the UK who really are finding it tough. I've got family over in the UK and it's they're still in complete lockdown and that doesn't look like it's going to be changing anytime soon yeah Uh, so i think we're pretty lucky uh where we are in australia and as much as i don't always like our government they've done a pretty decent job with this yeah Uh, so (laughs) anyway that's our political commentary done (laughs) um mitch why don't you take people through our social media platforms yeah, so we've got two main social media platforms. We're on Instagram at hashtag pick underscore drive underscore rugby. And we're on Facebook at pick and drive rugby podcast. So there are two platforms you can catch us on. And we've got lots of interesting things up on there. So get involved, follow, give us a follow, um, join up, and we'd like to hear from you. Yeah, we've got some pretty great contributions tonight. We're going to be rolling through for our Anzac teams. We've had a few listeners submit their 1 to 15. And so they're going to be uh, getting a bit of a shout out and talk, be a talking point later on in the pod, which is cool. Yeah. But for tonight, just to say again, um, the main thing we're going to be doing is going through our Anzac squads. But we also are going to be touching on some of the unfortunately depressing news about the rugby situation in Australia at the moment. Um, we're not going to be covering everything, just some of it. And also we want to talk through some of the potential world championship competitions that are being uh, kind of bandied around with Sir Bill Beaumont now being the World Rugby Union chairman. So I think that's it. Why don't we jump into our spicy news? Let's go. Our first segment this week is the spicy news update. We've got lots to talk about. First up, we are just going to address the board changes that have happened in Rugby Australia this week. Um, I'll throw this one to you, Ando, as you're a little bit more versed than I am. Oh, look, mate. Um, This is such a tumultuous time for rugby in Australia that 
in a way, um, I'm just going to put this out there, we're not going to be talking about the kind of Rugby Australia board politicking in any detail this week. We're kind of just going to let it ride for one more week and then jump into it a little bit more next week. But just to give you a very brief overview, um, basically we have a new interim CEO, Rob Clark. He is only going to be the kind of CEO of Rugby Australia for a short period of time until they organise a replacement CEO. He has confirmed that he won't be putting his hand up for the permanent position. Um, and we've also had Peter Wiggs basically throw spit the dummy um, that his good mate, I think it was Matt Carroll, um, who's the a Australian Olympic Committee CEO, he want, so Peter Wiggs wanted Matt Carroll just to be parachuted into the role of chief executive. Um, but basically Paul McLean, who's the current chairman, is like, well, he, he can apply for it and we'll go through the proper processes. But no, I'm not just going to rubber stamp him in and say that he's getting it without any of the normal due process. And so Peter Wiggs just took out his dummy, threw it on the ground. Uh -huh, and resigned. And then res like genuinely he resigned. And that seems to be from the leaked emails that came out in the Australian, honestly, how things went down. Um, so I really think at the current time, that's definitely not the the situation that Rugby Australia wants to find themselves in. They need to go through the proper process here and yep. interview a number of people, go through the the, candidates, the available candidates and then pick who the best option is, not just parachute someone in and do the sort of band-aid approach because that's not going to fix anything. And I, look, to be honest, I think we've already talked about this enough yep. for now. Um, I'm just going to say I have a lot of respect for uh, Paul McLean at the moment. He is doing a really, really tough job in a tough time. Um, and he's at least holding true to some type of values, at least in the way these things are being communicated publicly about the actions that he's taking. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's enough on that. Um, why don't we head to some of the challenges around Australian rugby in a broader sense that yeah. we were going to turn up. All right, so the first topic we're going to discuss this week is the broadcast deal for the rights for Australian rugby going forward from 2020. Now, the, this article particularly that we're focusing on was uh, written by Rugby Pass, and it is stating that Optus Director of Sport Richard Bayliss has sort of, well, Optus in general have turned their back on rugby and said we're not, no longer interested in, in pursuing a contract deal. They said, yeah, even further than that, though, he's claiming that Optus weren't close at all to making a deal prior to COVID hitting, which goes against a lot of reports that were coming yeah. out saying that there was basically, no, roughly Rugby Australian Optus were about a week away from making a deal. So this is really interesting that he's come out and said this. Big news. It also mentions Fox Sports are also taking their contract off the table that they're not going mm. to seek any further negotiations mm. on the broadcast deal and yep. with these two major parties optus and fox sports withdrawing their offers that really leaves rugby in australia in a horrible position yeah so where do we go now who do who's going yeah. to take over for the end of after 2020 once the deal is done with fox sports we now find ourselves in a situation where there may no longer be rugby on any form of television yeah and i think that ties in really well to a couple of other pieces of or stories that have come out one that's even come out today so i'm um, in kind of the non-professional rugby pundit circles uh green and gold rugby's 
Rugby Reg, if you know him. Um, he is pretty well regarded as having just a good understanding, good knowledge of the game. He's been running the Green and Gold rep website since something like 2011, I think. Um, and he's come out tonight, this late this afternoon, with basically this article suggesting that in his opinion, he's seeing that the future of Australian rugby is moving away from the professional game. That he doesn't think there is enough interest within um, kind of Australia and there isn't enough money within Australia to be running a professional competition. And that we're gonna just have to accept that the landscape is changing or was never really there to begin with when it made the jump from kind of amateur to professional. And that we're going to have to adopt like a semi-alien. It's interesting. It's definitely an interesting approach. It's not. It's not unwarranted. Yeah, and that's the thing. He's very reasoned, and I respect his opinion, and that makes this harder to hear. You got to. You really have to look at the Super Rugby product that we have at the moment, and it's. It's not. It's not getting the interest that it, that we need in the sport and it's not servicing the fans in any responsible or reasonable way. The, the fan engagement is dropping more and more every single year. The attendance has been slowly dropping for the last five or six years, consistently year on year. Yeah. Um, it does make you wonder whether we either completely drop out of the sort of super rugby level and do our own thing domestically or if we do drop that sort of professional level and just go back as this article suggesting and, and go back to a club competition. Now, the only thing that I would think in that situation is that would probably mean the end of rugby in Australia. On a, in a professional sense, I think. Yeah. Um, you would still have the grassroots and the amateur level because I mean, people are playing the game because they love the game. Um, I just, I just think it's really hard. You're going to have increasing ground being taken by AFL and NRL. And I think if you take away any professional opportunity for players here in Australia, um, or the majority of professional opportunity for players in Australia to earn a living, then, yeah, what, what are young children going to have to aspire to within the well, game? I would also say that if we did drop out of that, um, the level of super rugby and we went down to a sort of pro, semi-professional amateur type arrangement with club rugby i i would would ask the question if there was going to be enough talent to even sustain that if there's no Mm -hmm. level above sort of club rugby to aspire to if there's no super rugby there's no pathway to the wallabies without trying to get some contract with a french or european based club why would you play rugby union when you could be playing rugby league and going into the nrl I think we would see that if we did drop out of that level and went down to a purely amateur-based club competition with the Shoot Shield, that interest would drop completely away and yep. numbers would just dwindle. Yeah. And I mean, within within a number, I would say within a handful of years, <laughs> within three yep. or four years, there, it wouldn't be a viable game anymore. Well, looking at a report that's come out in the last few days by Gemba Group, who are a sports consultancy agency, they have come out with the opinion that um, Super Rugby isn't a sustainable product anymore and that there has been a 43% attendance drop since 2013 overall. And in that same period of time, for people between the ages of 16 to 39, a 73% drop. 
But one of the interesting quotes that came from that article was, or that report, was that they believed that since the club competition would be the new highest level of rugby in Australia, then all of, they, the quote was, instantly all your best players are in it. And that's just obviously not true because I think 95 or rugby reg just throws out the idea of 95% players will go overseas if they, there isn't professional competition here. Yeah. And I just completely agree. Why would you expect top quality players to stay and play in a club competition in Australia when they can be earning enough money in a short rugby playing career to set themselves up for a long period of time by playing in Japan, playing in France, playing in England? Um, I guess that, that, um, that begs the question of private ownership of teams then. Yeah, yeah. And that's what the English Premiership do. So every single team with an English Premiership is privately owned. Now, there is a salary cap for what it's worth. Saracen's breached it for the last bunch of years. But um, (laughs) (laughs) overall, most of the teams do um, follow the salary cap. Although, from what I've heard from other pundits over in the UK, basically none of the teams are actually... uh, what's the right language they're not making money from their investments they're doing no. it as like a passion project it's yeah. a wealthy philanthropist or not philanthropist but entrepreneur who's doing it as like a love project they love the game of rugby have enough money to pump into it like twiggy forest kind of thing if he did that with the western force um but yeah i think private ownership may be the way forward if we don't have the money to well rugby australia doesn't have the money to be sustaining things at the moment especially if the broadcast deal just falls over the line and we're not getting any big payouts, then they're going to have to be looking into other revenue options and you just can't rule out private ownership of clubs. Now, if we did go down that private ownership channel, how many teams do you think that we would be able to sustain in this country? Like how much Um, corporate interest would you say there would be to back a super rugby or a, a club side? So you would say the Western Force are fairly secure and that they've got the backing of Twiggy? Yep. What other firms do you think would come forward and put their backing behind anyone else? I think that you'd probably be able to find one for each of the current Super Rugby teams. It maybe not the Rebels. Yeah, um, that's what I was. I think that all say. the other teams are established enough that they would have enough um, presence, and you would hope corporate connections to be able to find somebody to come in and purchase the club um, or to purchase the team. It's, and I wonder if there's a difference because I need, I don't know enough about the governance structures to understand yeah. this, but maybe there's, there would obviously in my mind be a difference between purchasing the Waratahs, but then who would oversee New South Wales rugby and kind of the community programs and development pathways within New South Wales at the Waratah. I guess we'd have to look into the actual figures that Rugby Australia and the money that they have, but Mm. potentially you could have the Waratahs being privately owned by a corporation that look after the running of just that organization and then New South Wales rugby. So all of the lower grades and and the the kids competition could potentially be run by Rugby Australia, Mm. maybe. But then that begs the question of how much money do they have and could they even... haven't come out yet is partly because of the COVID lockdown impacting the ability to have independent auditors coming out 
but it's also supposedly partly because the financial situation is even worse than what people thought. And that we are, well, Rugby Australia is just incredibly in the hole or in the red and is close to going insolvent and going under. Um, so maybe more is going to come out about that in the next week or two. But the whole, genuinely, the whole last, the last week since we did our episode 10, kind of magic to double figures, <laughs> has just been so depressing from It really has. I, like, I read something this uh, week as well that was saying that the reason the funds or the figures weren't released sooner was that Rugby Australia had a debt that they hadn't paid to one of their partners. And I can't remember exactly who it was that we had some outstanding money due to be paid. Yeah. Um, but it, it hadn't been paid and they couldn't figure out how to pay it. And that was the reason behind why the figures were delayed. Now, I don't know the validity of that. And if that was just you know. some reporter making that up and wanting to sort of put that forward to the new CEO or what it was, but mm. worrying signs nonetheless. <laughs> It really is. Well, why don't we shift now to um, the World Nations competition because you want to talk through that a little bit more. Yeah, I did. Um, so the World Nations competition is something that was initially initially put forward by Bill Beaumont sort of end of last year, mid last year, 2019. It was yep. put forward as a format that saw test matches around the world actually mean something. So it was a tournament that included the top 10 to 12 nations and they would be the six nations and then the Sansa representatives and then a few extras. So maybe Japan or, or Fiji. And the format was that they would play a global competition every year and that there would be some sort of tracking and prize um, and a final that would be played at the end of the year between the two, I guess the first and the second ranked nations of the world. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was knocked back by the, uh, Scotland and Ireland, particularly, due to the fact that there was talk about relegate, promotion and relegation from second-tier nations. This competition has now been brought forward again, now that Bill has been re-signed as chairman of World Rugby and he's re- retained that position. He's put that competition proposal back on the table. Now, this new competition that he's proposing, and it, at this stage, it is still in sort of embryo form. It hasn't really been fleshed out. It's just an idea. It's taking some of the criticisms of the previous tournament and putting new things into it to make it a bit more attractive to more nations. Yep. And what it's looking at is a tournament that includes, again, the Six Nations and the Sansar Nations, as well as Japan and Fiji they're looking at having potentially two or three sort of levels of this competition with the emerging nations. And then the, the even, I guess, level three below that. Mm. Um, and the, one of the concerns from, of the previous model was that it would replace the six nations and the rugby championship, which is, was a big concern to the European nations because they really see that six nations is their sort of, viability and, and what brings in most of their money throughout the year. Now this Six Nations is fantastic. So basically, you know how um the 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 football world cup in Australia, whenever it comes around, every single person or the huge majority a huge group of people will watch the FIFA World Cup. 
yep. even if they don't watch many games or throughout the year or throughout the intervening four years, they will watch the FIFA World Cup. Similar in Europe, you will have, well, for the participating nations, you will have people who won't watch any other rugby games throughout the year will tune in for the Six Nations competition. So it's hugely popular and a very, very important um, kind of product for those member nations. So yeah, it's really significant for them. Now, there are two reasons for that. First of all, it is a very competitive tournament in that there hasn't been sort of one side that that has dominated over the years. It's been quite evenly spread, well, not evenly spread across across all the nations competing, but the, the top sort of three or four nations have had equal chances of winning it, whereas I guess our rugby championship down here has been a little bit swayed towards New Zealand. The second thing that brings... South Africa thrown in there as well. <laughs> I think they've won it once in the last five or six years and then we've won it as well and then New Zealand won everything else. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing that makes it so popular in Europe is that the Six Nations is broadcast on free-to-air TV, which is something we don't have down here. Mm-hmm. What are your th- general thoughts around before we sort of dive too much into this, this format and what people are saying about it, what is your general thoughts about the idea of a world nations competition? I'm really warming up to it. Um, I like the current talk about it and how the rugby championship in six nations would remain the same. But what you would have is the kind of spring tour that Australian teams would often do in November um, where we go over and play a bunch of European teams and try and get to Grand Slam and stuff. That would then, instead of just having that be an end-of-season tour, still be a part of a meaningful competition and there be something on the line for it. So I really like the fact that it is kind of upping the ante from a competitive point of view. Yeah. Plus, it's giving us regular game time, meaningful game time against Northern Hemisphere competition. Because what you often find is that teams that come down in kind of June or July, so you're France, or it was meant to be on the island this year, wasn't it? Yep. Um, they don't bring full-strength teams down, often because it's basically the end of their season, and they have a bunch of injuries, or they don't want people to get injured before, or they just don't want to have massive injuries for what is essentially a meaningless tour. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's there's nothing riding on it inherently. It's just a bit of a money grab kind of thing. Plus the joy of traveling and playing a game but i think with these this new proposed competition it adds an element of competitiveness and a regularity that is really enticing to me as a viewer if i know that i'm going to be playing i mean i've mentioned it before i'm half welsh if i know that i'm going to be having a game against wales every year then that's a really good family point of family connection with my family that is still over there um, if we know they're going to be playing England or Ireland, like it's just you can build up these rivalries over time that don't really exist a huge amount at the moment because we don't play them enough. Exactly. And I think that I think that that's a beneficial thing if people are willing to look into the what it might be in three, four, five years' time, not just the issues that it might have now from a popularity point of view. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the definite draw draw cards of this competition is that we would be seeing each team play each other twice a year or at least once a year um at the moment we don't sort of see that even split so 
Australia, we're pretty lucky in that when we go over in on our sort of spring tour, we play most of the European nations. We'll always play England. We'll always play Wales. We sometimes play Scotland or Ireland and maybe, um, yeah, someone maybe else. France. Maybe, maybe France. France. Yeah, it sort of changes year to year. But I, prior to the World Cup this year, I can't remember the last time New Zealand played England. It's been four or five years. They, they hadn't played in England b- before the World Cup for over 18 months. Yeah. Um, or maybe it was nearly up to two years. It was a specific thing that the, um, the RFU, so the English um, Rugby Union, they did not want to play New Zealand, supposedly. This is supposedly according to Eddie Jones' strategy. Um, they didn't want to play New Zealand in the lead up to so they could save everything for the upcoming knockout match once they figured out what the pools were for the Rugby World Cup. Yeah. But it would be good to see this set format come in and so that we could every year see England play New Zealand and um, Argentina play England and, and all of those and have have just a little bit more purpose around it. So at the moment we have the the spring tour and we're going for a grand slam but i don't i don't think the wallabies have claimed a grand slam in the last few years mm-hmm. we i know we haven't i don't remember yeah. the last time we we did get that grand slam but apart from that we're not really playing for anything yep it's often seen more as a development tour and i yeah. think that's that's beneficial because it means that some of the players the younger players that have had really good super rugby seasons have the opportunity to impress on the international stage but uh, i don't think you can say that that is more beneficial than what a regular ongoing competition that has a meaningful end result could provide in my mind. Yeah. So originally with this competition was proposed last year, it was knocked back, as we said before, by some of the lower six nation nations because they were fearing for promotion relegation in that they would find themselves playing in the second tier competition in an emerging nations tournament as opposed to in the first nations and for the benefit of their, the game in their countries, they didn't think that that was going to be sustainable and that they, they weren't for it, which is why it got knocked back. Now, most of the Sanzar nations were quite supportive of this tournament. Everyone apart from Argentina voted for it. And I think they fall into the same sort of boat in that they're, sort of on the cusp of relegation and that they might find themselves playing in a second tier competition as well. And that would definitely um, affect the popularity of the game within their country. What they are saying now with this new competition though, is that the Sansa teams and the six nation teams would be set to stay in that top tournament and the promotion relegation would be, of the two lower teams and by bringing in Fiji and Japan, you would, you would think that that would, those two countries would sort of be the ones that would be fighting for the relegation spot, particularly in the first few years. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the big, the big sticking point, obviously, like we've mentioned was the promotion relegation. Mm-hmm. And um, you can really understand that if you are the one that's overseeing a national um, national, union you don't you're not going to vote for something that could potentially be detrimental to your union if you drop down into the second tier of yep. the competition so that that makes sense i it's maybe a little bit short-sighted if you're not considering the greater good of the entire game but if exactly. your responsibility is just your nation yeah okay that makes sense so potentially there could be 
maybe a cap that there is no promotion relegation for the first few years of the competition. Um, potentially there are parachute payments. Maybe it means that there's increased distribution of funding to the emerging, emerging nations competitions so that the um, if you were to go down into that competition, it wouldn't be so detrimental to your national setup. I don't know. Maybe there are things to be working through. I just think that the big sticking point will be getting those nations who are on the cusp of potentially getting dropped uh, to sign up for it. I'm not, not really sure what Bill, Mo Bill Beaumont is going to offer to enable that to yeah. actually happen. And I guess we also don't know what sort of level of approval needs to be met for this competition to go ahead. I know yeah. last time it needed to be approved by every nation in the top tier. So all the six nations and all the, the Sansa com competing members. And because there was three of them that knocked it back, it was scrapped. Yeah. But I personally think for the good of the game, the development of the game throughout the world, a tournament like this is definitely something we need to be moving towards. It's going to create the pathway for the emerging nations to get better, to play consistently. It will bring in revenue through having consistent games throughout the year. And it, and the fact that there is that ability to move up into the, the higher echelons and move up into the first sort of nations is definitely something that will push them to be better. And you, you would also, yeah. <laughs> could also say that would help pull the talent of from world rugby throughout the world a little bit more. If there's, if there's more competition throughout the whole tournament and throughout the whole world. Mm. Look, I think there's lots of benefits for it. Um, I'm, I'm keen to see where this goes because it's kind of one of the brighter lights of uh, the brighter news stories that's been banded yeah. around this week. Um, so it's, it's good. It's positive. It means that, well, Elise is putting out the idea that Bill Beaumont is still trying to introduce some element of positive change and that he is not the, uh, reactionary old dinosaur that he may well in some ways have been compared as yeah. in relation to Augustine Pichot. So maybe he wasn't a bad selection uh, for the World Rugby Chairman. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, you're still not getting your Rugby World Cup 20, uh, like 2020 game or 2019 game. That's true. He's not there anymore. But hey... But uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe he's created enough interest in that that he will <laughs> pursue that avenue. Maybe Augustine Pichot put that idea out there and Bill Beaumont's going to run with it and then claim it as his own. There's a pretty good <laughs> like leadership strategy right there. So Now, before can, we just get off this and move to the next topic, um, one big thing that has come out, sort of a negative around sort of social media and different podcasts that have been talking about this competition, are saying is that they don't necessarily want to see this competition because outside of the Six Nations, they view any team sort of playing any other team sort of in the test match as being irrelevant. What is your kind of thoughts around that? Say it again, that I think that any game outside of the Six Nations... So outside is, of the Six Nations or the Rugby Championships, any yeah. games that happen between the nations, mm -hmm. so Australia and England or New Zealand and yeah. France, are essentially going yeah. to be irrelevant and that people aren't going to tune in and watch or want to engage in this new competition. Well, I think that um, currently games outside of the rugby championship and Six Nations are irrelevant to an extent. Like, they're development opportunities. Obviously, you want to win. 
um, but that there's nothing on the line realistically, except for the those trophies that whenever like England and Australia play Wales, there's a trophy that's awarded to the winner. Yeah, there's a handful of trophies. And then I think the other thing you would say is just the world rankings. Yeah, yeah. So well, there's no competition that they're playing for, right? So yeah, okay, they are meaningless games outside of the two major Northern and Southern Hemisphere competitions. Yeah. I just think that you can't immediately expect interest in a new competition um but at the same time i think there are enough massive problems going on particularly with southern hemisphere rugby that it would be incredibly short-sighted of northern hemisphere rugby competitions or unions to not be considering change on a global scale that will help keep the game of rugby union alive yeah because um there are reports coming out that new zealand is looking at different um different revenue streams, maybe even selling or getting investment from private equity firms that the, the New Zealand may not even be interested in partnering with Australia in any competition moving forward because of the ongoing issues in Australian rugby. Uh-huh. Um, like there's no guarantee of, of rugby in the Southern Hemisphere in kind of 10, 15 years time. Because, well, at least right here, right now, in this week, all the news articles are coming out very negative. Yep. And so I just, my broader thought is, to what extent do you shoot yourself in the foot in the long term by trying to protect your own interests? Yep. And do you, for the sake of greater windfall in the next five years, deprive yourself of ongoing improvement in the next 15 to 20? And I mean, that's hard to predict, but isn't in my mind that's the goal of leadership is to be trying to make positive and sustainable change that is going to benefit you now and into the future. Um, so yeah, you're not going to have interest in a new competition straight away. But that's why this model of keeping Six Nations and keeping um, the rugby championship, but then having the second international window be the extension of those yeah. existing competitions exactly. to me that actually sounds like a really reasonable and viable model that you could be trying to sell this on. And it's keeping the existing structures in place whilst just extending them in my mind. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking too. Have the six nations, have the rugby championships played as they currently played, then move to November and have those tests played, but actually mean something is definitely going to bring a little bit more cohesion to the the game and just have that little bit more, I guess, interest in those other tours and, and tournaments and, well, not tournaments, but those other uh, test matches towards the end of the year. So I definitely do agree that this is something we need to be moving towards. Um, I guess it will be interesting to see as as we get further down the line and we sort of resume rugby around the world in different formats and things, what how this idea evolves and to what level it kind of needs to be signed off. And because... I'm I'm just hoping that it doesn't come to a point where it says it, we need everyone to agree to this to go ahead because we're not going to get that. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure that for any changes for Six Nations, every nation has veto rights to any structural change. And I'm guessing that would be the same for SAMSA as well, that if there was to be any change to the governance or to be any change to the structures of the competition itself, that every nation would need to agree. Um, I'm pretty sure that's why things didn't go through last time because individual nations have veto rights. Mm-hmm. 
and there's nothing you can do to stop that. Um, I th do you think that's enough on that for now? I do. Yeah, definitely. I do. Okay. Okay. Well, why don't we shift now to our segment on our Anzac teams? Let's get into it. All right. We're now hitting our Anzac teams. So last week we let you guys know that we were going to be picking teams for basically one to 15 following some rules involving Australian and New Zealand players. So here were the rules that we had to pick our teams by. Australia and New Zealand, super rugby players. Had to be super based, except for two what we called Anzac internationals. So that could be a player playing overseas in any competition around the world. In addition to this, we had one under 21 young gun. We had one heritage player, so somebody who's retired, but when they're in our team, they're kind of at their peak, their prime, so in their best playing days. And we also had to have an Anzac coach as well. So what I'm thinking, oh, Mitch, I'm assuming you've got a team, yeah? I do. Awesome. Yeah. Great. How did you find choosing it? It was fun. I was yeah, trying to go through some fun. stats and have a look at things. Um, mm -hmm. It kind of pointed out to me that New Zealand probably aren't as dominant this year as I initially thought they were going to be. That they've got a but, lot of their players from the World Cup that are now playing in Japan. Yeah, there's a few of them, hey. Um, also, also they had when I was trying to look at some stats as well, but so many of their players didn't play the first few rounds of Super Rugby. That's right. That um, the stats were totally skewed, and so I kind of ended up having to go on gut feel for some of them because there was. I've mostly gone on gut feel, really. Okay, I don't have good. any stats to back these guys up. <laughs> well, this is good. Flying by the edge of our seats. So, Mitch, <laughs> why don't you go through your 1 to 15 and then we will comment and or ridicule as required. Okay. Um, and can I just put this out before we begin? Everybody, this is a bit of fun. Don't exactly. Don't get your twist. It's just we're having a laugh and having some fun with choosing these teams. So, Mitch, Yeah, like in that, in that vein, this doesn't actually exist. There's not an Anzac team as of now. These How good are just all... We'll talk about that after we name our squads, about Ooh, okay. some ideas where we'd like to see these teams play. But as of mm -hmm. now, this team doesn't exist. These are all hypothetical. These are who we would like to see personally. We're not representative of Rugby Australia, Dave Rennie, or anyone <laughs> part of New Zealand Rugby or Australian Rugby. This is all just well, a bit of fun. With all the layoffs that are happening at Rugby Australia, we might be getting a call-up or something like that. We're pretty cheap. Um, Actually, I heard New Zealand Rugby is talking about uh, letting go 70% of their staff. Oh, God. Anyway, okay, anyway, anyway your team. Anyway, my team. Okay, number one. Now, I've gone for my young gun first. First up, number one, Angus Bell from the Waratahs. Ah, okay. He's my young gun. All right. Getting him out of the way early. Yep. Out of, uh, at hooker, Dane Coles. Okay. At number three, Alan Alatoa from the Brumbies. Mm -hmm. Number four, Scott Barrett. Oh, yeah, cool. Number five, my first wild card or international player is Brody Retallick. Cool. Currently yeah. playing in Japan. Yep. Number six, the new All Black captain, Sam Kane. Yeah, great. Okay. Number seven, the current Wallabies captain, Michael Hooper. Mm hmm. Now, number eight, I had two players that I was really tossing up and it took me a while to figure out who I wanted to go with here, but I've yep. stuck with Artie Savea. Okay, cool. Number nine, I've gone with TJ Perinara. Really? Over Aaron Smith? I have, yeah. So I was actually looking at their stats quite closely for this one and yep. 
it came down to their not not defense in terms of tackle counts. Their tackles were pretty pretty similar, but Aaron Smith gives away more penalties than TJ Perinara does. Does he have more play minutes? This was for 2019. Oh, okay. Right. So I went off their 2019 stats for this on rugby pass. Yeah. And yeah. overall, Aaron Smith gave away more uh, penalties than TJ Perinara. But apart from that, they were pretty close. So I thought I'll go with TJ Perinara. And I thought you'd go with Aaron Smith. So I wanted to change things up a bit. <laughs> How did you know? Anyway, carry on. <laughs> At number 10, I've brought in my... Uh, my heritage player who only sort of just scrapes into this category, Dan Carter. Oh, cool. Well, isn't he still playing or did he just retire? He's retired. He has, I think, officially retired now. Well, he's in limbo. So he was yeah. playing with Kobe, I think it was, in Japan. Now... Yeah, I can't remember what team it was. So he was playing in Japan. The competition yeah. got cancelled. He doesn't have any other contract. So he's okay. facing retirement. So technically, like he's going to use my. Yeah, like Makiro. Yeah, okay. Number 11, I've gone with Sevu Reese from the Crusaders. Yeah, cool. Number 12, Samu Karevi. He's mm-hmm. my other wild card international player. Number yep. 13, Tavita Kuandrani from the Brumbies. Mm-hmm. Number 14, Marika Korobetti from the Rebels. Yep. And number 15, Bowden Barrett from the Blues. Yeah, cool. Okay, great. Yeah. That, that all sounds pretty reasonable, mate. Um, I don't think you're too <laughs> off your chops anyway. Um, now, the other player I was potentially tossing up for number eight was Pete Samu from the Brumbies. I know last time we <laughs> named... We forgot him and that was time. mainly because last time we named sides, we forgot him completely. Um, and I also know that Adi Savia has been playing a lot of blindside and openside flanker as opposed to number eight. But yeah. I've, I've gone with him in number eight. Yeah, okay, cool. Now, my coach, my, oh, yeah, my Anzac coach is yeah. Rod McQueen. Rod McQueen, good on you. Yeah. That's great. Got to go with uh, an Aussie. Okay. Um, I guess we did contribute more troops to the campaign, so fair enough that you would have an Aussie as the commander, as the officer. <laughs> um, well, that's all sounding pretty reasonable. Why Dane Coles over Cody Taylor? I mean, Cody Taylor was the starting hooker for the Rugby World Cup. Um, I just rate Dane Coles as a better thrower. Yeah, but I just in don't my like mind. Him. I just don't I like don't him. particularly like him either, but I want to see this team actually be successful. Oh, come on. No. <laughs> that's not the criteria on what you should be selecting people in. <laughs> I just okay, I honestly um, just think he's a better scrummager. Yeah, okay. All right. Um he's also he's also just incredibly good out wide. His hands are probably the best of nearly any um, hooker in international rugby. He's, exactly. He's such a good runner. Now, like, well, normally his, his skills around the park get me very angry and upset. Uh, at least yeah. if he's playing for one of my teams, I, I'd like him to be you know, <laughs> playing for us and, and doing those things for the benefit of the game, of our game. Look, so, You're a good human, mate. I anyone else in there that's sort of Wait. questionable? Oh, well, I've already questioned you on TJ Perinara. Yep. Um, but I understand the reasoning. He's actually not far behind Aaron Smith in any way, shape, or form. They're so close. It yeah, really neck and neck with those two. I also just yeah. thought that Aaron Smith has had a fair bit of game time yeah. as opposed to Perinara, so he started a lot more games. So I thought mm-hmm. I'd give uh, Perinara the run here and then Aaron Smith can come uh, can come off the bench. 
You had Artie Sevilla as your number eight, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, okay, cool. Because Michael, a lot of people have this thing against Michael Hooper where they just, people just hate him and they think that he's horrific at his position. He isn't what people would claim to be as a traditional open side. Mm-hmm. And he just doesn't deserve to be in the Wallabies jersey at all. Um, there's this really strong core of people that think that. Um, yet it seems that a lot of the people that actually kind of the analysts or are in the game rate him incredibly highly. Did you have any hesitation in choosing Hooper as your number seven? Not at all. I think we saw from the Chiefs game this year down in uh, for the Waratahs and Chiefs game that was Mm -hmm. that we did get one of the few games we did get to see this year down in Newcastle. uh, No, down in uh, Wollongong. Yes, down in Wollongong that Michael Hooper actually came out above Sam Kane in that game. Yeah, okay. So... Mm -hmm. I'm going off that form. Okay. All right. Um, anything else you feel the need to justify or defend yourself in? I don't think so. I think that's a pretty sleek looking back line. We've got some really <laughs> good punch there. That's true. That's There's some true. big some... sort of Islander plays in there that I would definitely not want to be tackling. You've got big bodies in motion. Having Karevi and Kurindrani as a 12-13 axis with Korobedi as well as a strike force. I mean, you have basically no kickers at all in your back line. Um, you've got Bowden yeah. Barrett and Dan Carter. Yeah, I know you've got those two, but I'm just talking about like 11 to 14. Nobody yeah, but Bowden Barrett will, does all <laughs> of the kicking. Okay. Well, why don't I go jump into my 15? Because, um, yet yeah, again, there's some points that are very similar. Um, but there are some also some pretty significant differences as well. So, uh, number one, Angus Bell is my under-21 young Oh, no. Really? Come on. Okay, you you have to choose a different one. Um, No, 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 that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had Cody Taylor as my hooker at number two and Alan Alatoa at number three as well. Um, With honourable mention to Taniela Tupo, I really wanted to put him in as well, but I've got some pretty dynamic players elsewhere in the back line in the um, forward pack. So Actually, yeah, now that you mentioned that, I really did struggle with that as well. I really wanted to put Tupo in. I probably should have, but I know last time I did that and I in the Wallabies team that I put up, everyone smashed me for not having enough Brumbies. And they said that you have to be either New South Wales or Queensland. So I'm like, no, I've got a few Brumbies in this team. So I'll stick with that. Um, it's his birthday today, 10th of May. It is. It is. Yeah. Who undoubtedly listens to this podcast. So uh, hope you had a great day. Yeah. Happy um, birthday, Nella. <laughs> so my number four is my first international call-up of Brody Vitalik. Uh, and then I had John Eels as my heritage player. Oh, nice call. Nice call. Number five. So that's a bit of a point of difference. I just yeah. didn't want yeah. a caveman of Scott Barrett in my team. Um, so John Eels. Tips <laughs> um, plus he's a backup kicker as well. So good to have. Uh, then my six, seven, eight was Artie Sevilla at number six, Michael Hooper at number seven, and Isi Nasirani at number eight. Okay, nice. So, bit of an Australian yeah. flavor there. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, I was tossing up between having Ari Sevilla play at number eight and then maybe someone like Sam Kane at number six. Yep. Much we would have just had the same back, back row. Um, but I really like Ari Sevilla at open side. And I think Isina Sarani, I just, 
there's a lot that I really, really like about the way that he plays. And um, he, he was a close call with Pete Simon. Pete, I didn't forget you. I promise you are close in my heart and dear to me. But I just picked Jesse Nasrani. Is he on the reserves thing? Number eight. Uh, Pete Simon. Yes. Yeah, he definitely he would be in the reserves if yeah. I had picked the reserves. Yeah, cool. Um, but, uh, so. uh, number nine, as you can guess, Aaron Smith. Um, and then 10 was, for me, Richie Mwanga. Really? Then, okay. Yeah, Richie Mwanga. Yep. Then George Bridge at number 11. So basically starting New Zealand wing. And then the other wing was Sevi Reese as well. So I've basically got the two New Zealand wingers there. In, and so that point of difference was you had Cora Betty. Yeah, I had, re- I had Sevi Reese at 11 and Cora yeah. Betty at 14. I'm just going to put my cards on the table and say I still don't really understand the difference between the 11 and the 14. So I just put two wingers in there. Yeah, um, I, I don't really either. I think it comes more of their which foot they kick off. But uh, <laughs> yeah, look, to be honest, I had my head in scrums when I played. Winger. So <laughs> we need to get an interview with a winger and be like, can, can you explain that to us, please? Um, then 12 13 was Sami Karevi, who's my second and last international player. And then Tavita Kurandrani, too. And then Bowden Barrett at 15. So we have a Far out. So similar. Well, yeah. I mean, to be honest, some of it's pretty, like, it just makes sense to have it that way. I, I kept the 10-15 because um, I'm, so Richie Mwanga and Bowden Barrett being in the same team because they were starting to get some good synergy there in some of the New Zealand games in the tail end of last year. Okay. And I just thought that you need to have a couple of playmakers when you have Samu Karevi, Tavita Kurandrani and Sevu Reese in your back line because none of them are particularly good distributors of the ball. Yes. And so having a 15 that can easily join the back line as a second distributor um, to me just makes sense. That's so, one of the things I was worried about as well, that yeah. with my back line, these guys are very strong ball runners, but they're mm. not great with their passing and offloading game. Yeah. Yeah. And like, but let's just run it through everyone. Sorry, you go. I was going to say, let's just run. I'll just, I'll just, if I was the coach, I'd be like, boys, hold on to the ball and just run it. <laughs> this is true. Especially when you've got Adi Sevilla on your team and Brody Retallick, they're just, beasts of human beings um Adi Sevilla is an animal every single time he gets the ball he just looks fearsome um I'd love to have him in my team he's he's incredibly good uh oh my coach my coach now I as I mentioned before I'm a bit newer to the game of rugby so I mean I hear that Rod McQueen statistically was just a legend of the game for Australian rugby but I mean I don't I never didn't really know him yeah, when I was running when I was younger, so I've gone for coaches that I'm I know, yep. and I chose Michael Checker, <laughs> Warren Gatland. Okay, I was thinking cool. who are the two best? He's he's New Zealander, although yep. he's been obviously coaching Wales for a long yep. time. Um, he's an honorary he, Welshman. Honorary Welshman. He, um, him, and. Steve Hansen are the two standout coaches, probably maybe along with Eddie Jones as well of kind of the recent era. Um, but from more of like, they, they're just up there as the best coaches in international rugby at the moment. And I just dislike Steve Hansen with such a passionate intensity that there was no way I could choose him. Yeah. Uh, yep. So I went with Warren Gatlin. Cool. Um, <laughs> so that's my I, um, I very nearly went with Eddie Jones as my coach. Oh, yeah. 
But for me, unfortunately, like whilst I do like Eddie Jones, he's been so close so many times, but he's never quite got the chocolates when it counts. Well, that kind of would fit in with the whole like Gallipoli campaign. So it could have been a pretty good contextual choice. It could have. And with this team, (laughs) hopefully he could have like inspired them to greatness. But I just thought Rod McQueen is the statistically the most successful Wallabies coach we've had. And he, in the same year or in the same couple of years, he won the Tri-Nations, the Bledisloe and the World Cup. So, I mean, he he had a crazy good team, but also this is a crazy good team, I think. So uh, these are world beaters right here. I think so. I think that's a pretty great team. Now, before we move Um, on to the fan ones, I did have mm -hmm. a few other sort of names that I had penciled in before I stuck with the names I've got. So I also tossed up... At, uh, Lucan Salakai Loto at five. Oh, really? I, okay. I couldn't really go past Brody Retallick, especially for his line-out presence. Yeah. Um, and then at 11, I was looking at Jonah Lomu. Yeah, me too. But then I thought you were going to choose Lomu, so I didn't. <laughs> I thought everyone was going to choose Lomu and no one's chosen him. It's incredible. So, like, nobody has chosen Lomu as a heritage player. I guess it, like you think you need him, but I don't know. He has, He's been... He's been out of the game for a little while now, so maybe his style doesn't quite fit with the current game. Oh, but look at the impact that someone like Tekeli Nairavoro or Tonkeli Nairavoro had, um, both at the Waratahs and now over at Northampton as well. Yeah. The idea of having a 110-plus kilogram winger who can run 100 metres in sub-11 seconds is still incredibly powerful, and I don't think yeah. we'll ever yeah. go away. Um so maybe he would still need to add. Maybe he would need to add a couple of extra elements or strings to his skill set. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm amazed that nobody, even out of the fan submissions that we've had or the listener submissions, have nobody has chosen Jonah Lomu. Yeah, exactly. I did because I thought everybody would, but nobody has. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a good segue. So let's move into the fan teams. <laughs> Well, that's a nice little segue into our fan submissions for their Anzac teams. Let's have a look at what we received. So our first team comes to us from James Dean, and he's named a pretty strong-looking team. So he's it doesn't exactly fit the rules, but it's, it's pretty close. So we'll, we'll, why don't you just run through 1 to 15 quickly, and then we'll talk about some of the key kind of... Yeah, points. sure. So number one, Joe Moody. Number two, Cody Taylor. Number three, Alan Alatoa. Number four, Brody Retallick. Number five, Will Skelton. Number six, Owen Finnegan. Number seven, Adi Savea. Number eight, Harry Wilson. Number nine, TJ Perinara. Number 10, Richie Mawanga. 11, Marika Korobedi. 12, Malachi Fekatoa. 13, Jordan Patea. 14, Sevu Reese. And 15, Charles Patel. Patel. So. The- oh, with coach Steve Hansen. Yeah, gross. <laughs> no, but, no, no, no. He's very good. He's very good we've got our Anzac hats on now. Oh, sorry. Yes, we are all as one, aren't we? Yeah. Um, now, there's a couple of points I just want to say. He actually has one, two, three international, uh, four international players. So Brody Retallick is in Japan. Will Skelton is in England playing for Saracens. Uh, Malachi Fekatoa is uh, in England playing for Wasps and Charles Piatow is in England playing for Bristol. So he's got double the number of internationals allowed, but does have the Owen Finnegan as a heritage player and then Harry Wilson as the under-21 young gun. 
So what were your thoughts, Mitch? It's a pretty good team on paper. If we get rid of the rules that we set out. Um, yeah. It is. Fekito is awesome. Um, yeah, definitely. Charles, Charles Piatau is one of the best players that's going around. Um, he's, the fact that he's been lost to New Zealand rugby for a few years now is massively detrimental for them. Look at this, the height in that second row. Brody Retallick and Will Skelton. They are two gigantic men. Yep, huge. They, huge. they would win every single line out. Well, yeah, I guess Skelton has been getting lifted more and more. He was too heavy for a while to be lifted properly in a line out. Um, but Owen Finnegan can jump in a line out too. So they'd work well. And it'd be interesting to see Fekatoa and Patea go play together. Yeah, true. I think Fekatoa is just one of, like I was saying with Adi Surveyor before, Fekatoa is just an absolute animal with the strength and the explosive power that he brings into every time that he runs the ball. Um, plus he has gigantic eyebrows, which are intimidating to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, looking um, at this team, it would be pretty cool to, to name a international 15 or like a world, like a true world 15. So the best yeah. players from all over the world. Maybe we should do that another week. Maybe, Maybe. we should do it. But yeah, we'll think about okay. it. We'll think about All right. It. So I just want to say a big thanks to James for sending that in. It is a really, really strong team. I like the addition of Harry Wilson, particularly at under 21 yeah. uh, and number eight as the young gun. Um, he is somebody that a lot of people have had big raps on from his start this season. And it's cool to see him getting the recognition in the media. Uh, and it seems that James is a big fan of him too. So good on you, Harry. Keep on going. Cool. So our next one comes to us from Gary Temples. And do you want to run through this one, Ando? Yeah, cool. Um, we'll run through and then have a chat. And then there's a number 15. I, I did some digging on, so I, I want to talk about that guy a bit more. Cool. So number one, Joe Moody. Number two, Dane Coles. Number three, Alan Alatoa. Number four, Sam Whitelock, first international player. Uh, number five, Will Skelton, second international player. Number six, Scott Fardy or Shannon Frizzell. Um, Scott Fardy's international playing over at Leinster. Uh, Shannon Frizzell's still in New Zealand, isn't he? I think so. Yeah. I, I couldn't remember. He's at the Highlanders, but I don't. Um, seven, either way. Seven, Michael Hooper. Um, eight, Artie Surveyor. Nine is the young gun, Tate McDermott. Ten, Bowden Barrett. Eleven, Tankeli Nayavoro, another international. Uh, Twelve, uh, Lamapi. Thirteen, <laughs> Anthony Brown. Pardon? Oh, Nagani. I'm happy. Sorry, didn't say full name. 14, Severis. And 15 is a heritage player, Don Clark, who I'll talk about more in a moment with coach being Graham Henry. Cool. Interesting. He's yeah. Tate McDermott under 21. Oh, good question. I'll look it up right now. I thought he was, but I thought that's why you would be choosing Tate McDermott over Perinara or um, Aaron Smith. But let me look it up. I know he came through that under-21 Australian team, same as Harry Wilson, but I thought he was sort of on the, the older end of the age bracket and that he might potentially be over 21 now. Who knows? We'll say it counts. We'll take it. It's cool to see him yeah. in there. Oh, he's 21 right now. Um, yeah, okay. So he's tech- that doesn't mean he's under 21. <laughs> no, that, yeah, that counts. Does that you can count? Still, you can still play for the under-21s when you're 21. That doesn't make sense to me because you're not under 21. But anyway. Um, Welcome so to rugby, my friend. Young gun choice. He is the young gun choice, which is good. Cool. 
Let's I've, run us through some of the Don Clark stats. Yeah, yeah, cool. So um, when this got posted, I was really confused because I'm like, who, who is Don Clark? So I replied <laughs> to um, Gary and he, quote, well, he, he claims that Don Clark is, quote, the most underrated fullback in rugby history. So I did a little bit of digging who this mythical Don Clark fella actually was. And he was a New Zealand fullback from 1956 to 1964. He um, died in 2002, I believe. And he was an absolute beast. He was 115 kilograms. So he is the second largest outside back to Joe Malomu. I saw wow. it in that, that came out earlier. And he's yeah. playing in the 50s, 50s and 60s. It's insane. Um, so if you go onto YouTube and you look up t- um, Don Clark, highlights you can find a like four minute highlights reel of the um british and irish lines tour to new zealand in 1959 and in the first game the new zealanders won 18 to 17 and don clark kicked six penalty goals to get all of the 18 points to help them win the game um, in the second in second test, he scores a try, converts, gets a penalty, wins the game for him as well. And in the third test, he does an absolutely insane snap kick drop goal, right? So the British and Irish Lions get it, or I think it might have even been... The, the, the footage is so grainy, by the way. It's from <laughs> I would imagine. It's really, really hard to see. So somehow the ball goes loose from a backline play. Maybe the Kiwis dropped it. Maybe, I don't know, something happens. And Don Clark is kind of like half facing backwards to pick up this ball that's like grubbering and bouncing on the ground, picks it up, turns, snap drop kicks from about 40 metres out on the far side of the field, slots it right between the posts. He was just insane with his kicking uh, ability. And the cool thing is you watch him take a place kick. You know how like players nowadays will take two or three steps back They'll then take two or three steps to the side, look up, look down at the ball, look up, look down at the ball, do a little wiggle, and then take the kick. He just took like two or three steps back and then just ran forward and booted the ball as hard as he could directly straight. <laughs> it looks like a toe poke, but the ball does not curl, does not curve at all, just goes dead straight. That's awesome. It was was really, really fun to watch. So, Gary, thank you so much for teaching me about Don Clark. It was great to be able to learn about this heritage player. Well, if you're interested, um, like I am about that video, we'll put it up on our socials for everyone to see. Yeah, totally. There's there's some really good ones. There was another one that's um, like an unofficial induction of Don Clark into the Hall of Fame where they give a bunch of stats about his career. Um, Supposedly, at the time of retirement, he was two times he was two times more or higher in the points that he'd scored for New Zealand than anybody else was for a national team. He had over 200 points scored for New Zealand, and the closest was a French person with 90 points in that same period of time. Um, now, how accurate that is is in a YouTube video, uh, we'll have to find out. But it was awesome to just find out about this player who was, from all sounds, of it, a really dominant player in that time period. So thank you, Gary, for that shout out. Cool, that's really awesome. Yep. Well, why don't we move on to the last one then, which comes from a member of the Foster family. It does. This one comes from my brother, Tim, um, and he's named an interesting team. (laughs) So we'll run through it quickly. Uh, At number one, we've got Joe Moody. 
Two, Dane Coles. Three, Alan Alatoa. Four, Rob Simmons. Five, yeah, yeah. Scott Barrett. Six, Ned this Hannigan. Yes. Seven, Michael Hooper, also captain. Number eight, Artie Surveyor. Number nine, Aaron Smith. Ten, Bowden Barrett, also co-captain. Number 11, David Campese is the heritage player. Number 12, Dan Carter is the international player. 13, James O'Connor. 14, Mark Nawantanitawasi as the under-21. And 15, Damian McKenzie. All of this coached by Alan Jones. What a hero. I just wish Alan Jones was back in the world to be set up right now. He just fix everything. He um, thinks he would. <laughs> so, obviously, there's a few talking points there. Uh, Rob Simmons, Ned Hannigan as probably the man. And Mark Noanganitawase, although the fact that he's a young, young pick, I can understand that a bit more. Yeah. Um, but with, I think the the call for Ned Hannigan when he hasn't played a game this season is a big one. It is a big one. I, I was speaking to Tim earlier tonight and he said that some of those players he was really struggling with in the forward pack. Um, uh, yeah, he so he couldn't sort of many others. Yeah, he couldn't think of anyone else. Um, I would potentially say, due to the rules, he's only got one international player. So let's get rid of Ned Hannigan and pop in Scott Barrett. I mean, not Scott Barrett, um, Scott Fardy. Yeah, cool. That'd be good. I reckon that would beef that that team up a little bit better. So we've got Scott Barrett at five and Scott Fardy at six. Yeah, cool. The back one's actually pretty exciting. So to have Barrett, Carter... McKenzie, Nawanganitawase, and Campisi all in the back line is just insane. Those um, two finishes on the wings, that's oh, awesome. Oh, like David yeah. Campisi's got the goose step, but Nawanganitawase can just finish from anywhere. It's pretty, he's just, that's the thing. I mean, when we were talking about the Waratahs earlier in the season, he did have some weaknesses in his um, defensive setup. But from an attacking point of view, he's just a clear-cut finisher and does that incredibly well. Um, and so, I think in a back line like this, that has James O'Connor and Dan Carter, as well as Bowden Barrett sort of calling all the shots. It's interesting as well that we've got Dan Carter at 12, not 10. But Yeah, I'd be talking that around with Bowden Barrett. Well, Dan Carter did start his career at 12. Did he? Yeah. So oh, yeah. that's why he's gone with that. But yep. with, with Bowden Barrett at 10, Dan Carter at 12, and James O'Connor at 13, they're definitely going to make the opportunities for Marky Mark to make those finishing touches. It's a really small back line, though. Compared to, the, yeah, compared to my one, it is. But you they're don't have much. A strike player at all. And I say strike player from like a power game. Um... Yeah, but in the sort of in that back line, you're not really going for the the big ball carry. You're going for the the step and the the offload mm-hmm. sort of game. Yeah, okay. I, I think it would work. Yeah, look, I'm, it's an exciting back line without a shadow of a doubt. Um, it's playing a particular way, and that would be really entertaining and really exciting to watch. I think. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. Well, Good thank course. you, Tim. Thank you, Gary, and thank you, James. It's awesome to be able to have this opportunity just to chat and get some people's input on their ideas and just to see what the general consensus is around kind of what, what I'm really liking is the fact that there is, there's, there's obviously a preference for New Zealand players um, and that's completely fair enough because they are 
as a competition and as teams basically better than Australian teams. Um, but there are in key positions Australian players that are pretty consistently picked. So I think out of the five teams that we had, four of them picked Michael Hooper at number seven. And we every single team has picked Alan Alatoa at number three. Uh, so I should have I gone with Tupo. He had enough <laughs> representation. <laughs> Mate, the one I was just thinking of when I was talking about power game and outside backs is having like my heritage player being Digby Yuani. Oh, um, how good would that be? That would be awesome. Or I was even thinking of um, Radiki Samo as well. Uh, oh, yes. Put him on the wing. Put him on the wing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is fun. Doing this type of thing where you just get to choose whatever players you want is just a laugh. That's something we could potentially look at for a future week of doing a world 15 of picking the best players that we think from around the world is the best in their positions, which could be interesting. Now, before we finish this segment off, I just wanted to chat about where we think we could see this team potentially play. Okay. What do you think? Well, being that next year is currently due to be an Alliance year with Alliance heading to South Africa, the fact that there's no rugby being played now, it would be awesome and this would be an ideal situation that the borders opened and travel was allowed. But how good would it be to see this team travel over to Europe and to play the British and Irish Lions at Twickenham as some sort yeah. of like charity match? So like right before the Lions leave for their tour? Well, they play this year. So you either select a development line side who's potentially try a few things out for the Lions tour next year or yep. name the majority of the Lions side apart from um, injury or retirement from the last uh, tour to New Zealand mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then play this. There, there was talks or Warren Gatland was putting forward that he loved to see the Lions play the All Blacks in November or December this year as a sort of stalemate or to yeah, decide yep. yep. I just think the idea for next year is a really cool idea. Um, and my thought would be you throw it at the beginning of the Lions tour before they leave for South Africa. So it's kind of like the farewell match before they go. Um, and that, that could be a really fun curtain raiser for the entire Lions experience itself. Um, I, I just, the, the, the obvious problem is that you can't really fit in more international games. Um, because the schedule is already so packed. Which so is why you have to do it in this current situation where we yeah, don't have international yeah. rugby being played. Yeah, I think the big problem that unfortunately reality comes into it where Europe is just in such a mess at the moment yeah. Um, yeah. that I think that even by September, it may well be that they're not allowing international travel um, and it uh, who, who knows? It's but not going to happen. Right. I think this year. I think this year, if it were ever to happen, would be an opportunity for it to happen. Yeah, exactly. It would be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it really would be. And hey, maybe we'd get proved right or wrong on some of our choices. Um, yeah, it'd be really fun. Cool. Well, that um, ties up our Anzac Fifteen segment nicely. Yeah. Cool. Let's let's do it. Thank you for joining us for episode 11 of the Pick and Drive Rugby podcast. That's everything for this week. We'll, um, we'll end it there and uh, we'll catch you all next week.
for another episode of Rugby Chats. And hopefully we'll have some more clarification around when we can return back to seeing some rugby played. I'm so excited. I think it's going to be a race to see whatever sport competition gets on the ground first. It's just going to have every single person in Australia just watching it. Even if it's New Zealand rugby starting up before anything in Australia does, everyone's going to be watching that. Uh, Just people are going to be desperate for sport. It's really at that point. So it'd be awesome Mm -hmm. to see rugby being that first game played in some country, in some format. Um, But yeah. yeah. Let's let's wait and see. Well, as that point, I think I heard that the Faroe Islands are restarting their like professional football competition that's going on, and so it may well be that like the I don't even know where the Faroe Islands. Yeah, I was going to say where's that? Where are they? they? I'm not sure. I'm going to look it up right now. But I'm pretty sure the Faroe Islands are going to be the first ones back with any type of sport competition. So they may well end up getting a huge amount of... Um, of viewership. A huge amount of like, viewership just because nobody has anything live to be watching. <laughs> uh, they are off... Oh my gosh. The Faroe Islands are between England slash Scotland and Iceland. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know, I didn't know that Wow, cool. Okay. Basically, it's going to be like a Viking stopping point on their race. And is that... Is my thought. Is that soccer? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so football, soccer. Sorry. <laughs> we don't mention that name on this well, podcast. Sorry. I apologize. <laughs> no, cool. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for um, listening, everyone. Uh, we've got our social media platforms out there. So we'd love to hear from you with any ideas for future episodes or anything you'd just love to hear us chat about. So get involved and we'll catch you all next week. Get involved. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. You can follow us on social media at the following outlets. Follow our Facebook page at Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. Send us a tweet at at pick underscore drive rugby. Follow our Instagram at pick underscore drive underscore rugby or send us an email at pickanddriverugby at gmail.com. We'd love to hear any questions or feedback you may have, so get in touch. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next week.